Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni back from a brief hiatus. I'm here with Mark Chenoweth. And hiatus sounds like we weren't picked up by the network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the writer's strike. <laughs> it kept us out. Our, our, exactly. our bullpen of, uh, of top crack writers uh, uh, didn't let us get on the air. But in any event, um, where, I, where I actually was, was off uh, in New Orleans at the argument uh, before the Fifth Circuit in Missouri v. Biden. And uh, last week, I, I know Janine Yunus was on to talk about the Twitter files, um, some of the things that were revealed there. But what was going on last week was in the, in the Missouri v. Biden case, where we represent individuals who were thrown off um, Twitter and other social media uh, at the government's behest, uh, there's been an injunction issued. And the government the next day actually was issued July 4th, July 5th, they appealed it. There was a lot of briefing and um, extremely fast, um, well, in, in the law, extremely fast uh, responses from the Fifth Circuit. They put us on for the next argument um, panel, which was August 10th. So from basically everything had to be briefed and before them between uh, July 5th and August 10th, which is fast in the law. And um, so uh, – the um, the uh, government is trying – there's an administrative stay so that the injunction the court put out is not in effect right now. An administrative stay is just uh, a stay that is so the court gets to review the papers by, by and large. It's not on the merits. And so we had oral argument, and we uh, – on the government side, um, they, they went uh, first because they're, they're, the, they're the ones who appealed. <laughs> And um, they are completely um, unapologetic about anything they've done and say that it's all legal, that uh, there is no there was no pressure put on it. It's it. it there was no threats made. It was just and I love this because uh, Mr. Tenney, who represents the government, he he um, he had to say he said this. These were just conversations. And sometimes they were conversations that w- were um were, were very cordial and sometimes they weren't cordial. <laughs> I'm like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, oh yeah, <laughs> do this, do that. And um, he got... <laughs> sometimes I happened to be holding a baseball bat while I had the conversation, you know, exactly. just uh, draw your own conclusions. Exactly. So um, he, uh, the bench was, was uh, particularly judge Elrod was pretty um, uh, active and so uh, Judge Elrod wanted to she, – she brought up the first thing. She says, well, isn't this a little bit like – everybody knows the government has power, so I, I'm not comparing the government to this, but it's the only analogy I can think of is basically what she said. It's like organized crime coming in and asking you to do something. They don't tell you exactly what they're going to do to you, 
but everybody knows. And is it like that? And she apologized many times for making the analogy, but I think it fits uh, because our uh, there's tons of things the government can do to these social media companies. Uh, they, with short of cement shoes, right? Sort of cement shoes, but they can they can certainly, um, you know, one of the debates that was going on at this oral argument was, well, what about the congressional threats? And our position is that that's the background of you know, and and I think this is. This is true. The fact that the that there's bipartisan efforts to remove uh, Section 230 protection from these um, social media platforms is well known to them. I think that then the administration alluding to that um, and threatening that in the background makes it more plausible since we know that it isn't gridlock that's going to stop it uh, because because both sides want to do this or, or threaten from Congress and then threaten from the from the uh, executive. But even more to the point, the executive can do lots of things to these companies. They can put in amicus briefs on what 230 means, narrowing it. They can they can um, say that it doesn't it doesn't protect from this, that, and the other thing. We see it all the time that administrative agencies narrow or broaden something where you think the statute would just be controlling. And um, so uh, the threats and and the language, the preemptory language. Judge Elrod was very concerned with the preemptory language that was used. Particularly by uh, by uh, Flaherty, who was the White House uh, aide on all this, he he would he would send extremely angry uh, emails to the companies that they hadn't responded fast enough. Why wasn't this done? Right. Which just, I thought I told you to yeah, blank exactly. Yeah. And I and I have to tell this story because I don't think it's really come out enough, but it is hilarious. So the. The government tells all the social media to have their algorithms changed so they can catch disinformation, particularly um, COVID disinformation super spreaders. And Instagram goes ahead and does this. Well, the next thing you know, President Biden's Instagram account is uh, caught in the net and taken down. At, because one, I think one of this is what I think. I'm not tech, very technical, but how many times you you post about COVID is one of the algorithms. And if you, you're doing a lot of it, they assume you're a super spreader and they knock you off from the algorithm until you complain. So they, so they got caught in the net that they created. So Flaherty calls up Instagram and he's yelling at them and yelling at them that it's still down. He seems to be very upset that uh, the, the president has been called a super spreader of COVID disinformation and taken down. And he is just outraged by it. And one of the funniest things in the event was is that the, uh, Mr. Tenney said the, the government's lawyer said that you know oh, well those weren't really those weren't um, telling people to uh, that those emails were not telling anyone to censor anyone. <laughs> and, and he then didn't explain that it was telling them not to censor the president, but that's what happened. And I find it I, I found it very funny. Um, and then on our so he he was asked a, a lot of questions about uh, and and also Judge Willett was absolutely uh, hey look this does seem to say in nice social media um, platform you have shame to, if anything happens to it same same with the mob type uh, al, al, um, analogy and and he he also asked he says well how much is this is this is this um, coercion is it pressure are they working together what's going on here. 
And the government didn't have stuck to the, this is just conversations. This is, we can always And they said they're still doing it. Right. Well, that was the next thing. So then that was Judge Clement. She asked very few questions, but I think the one of the most important one, are you doing this now? Yes, we're doing this now. So then on our side, we had two people arguing, one for the state of Louisiana, one for the state of Missouri. Um, John Sauer uh, was primarily on the, on the merits of this. And Josh Devine, Missouri, was on state standing. Um, which I'm not going to get into, uh, but but what they asked John Sauer goes to how what what we think is going to happen, because they were really into the, the as far as they were questioning us, they were questioning us on the breadth of the injunction. Um, there were standing questions, but we Mark and I have talked about standing forever, so I'm yeah. going to leave that alone for. But right the NCLA now. clients did come up in that regard. They did, and and that is this. So this this goes to the narrowing part of it. They said, well. If Louisiana and Missouri don't have standing, will the injunction change if it's just the individuals? The response from John Sauer was no, because um, Jim Hoft is not our client, um, particularly has um, he, he posts on all these things, on all these subjects, It's not just COVID or vaccines or or anything of that nature. So um, and, and in any event, all the all of these clients um, have said that they are listeners to this. They they listen to all these accounts and they view all these accounts. So under this, uh, the First Amendment has a, a couple of prongs to it. One is the right to speak, but the other is the right to hear other speakers. And the district court hadn't really um, based its order on the second thing, but it's a constitutional principle that they could certainly uh, affirm it on. So um, that was one. And the other one was, um, well, what about the social platforms that aren't in the complaint? So TikTok is well, it and a few others. Wasn't there also something about the, the YouTube takedown? Didn't John Sauer mention something about it? Yes. So, <laughs> yes. So we were talking about this. YouTube is in the complaint, but it's this what he they asked how often this was happening, if it's still happening. And as some of you may know who watch uh, our, our luncheon laws, we had a luncheon law with John Sauer where we sort of previewed what was going to happen at this argument. And it was uh, uh, Jeanette Brown, myself, and and John, and we put it up on YouTube, as we always do with our luncheon laws. And the next day, it was taken down as misinformation of some kind. And um, then we appealed, and it, and it didn't get put up. I hear, Mark, that it has been put back. Eventually, it was restored, yes. All right. But at this not, hearing— Not it until had, we had directed not, a bunch of people to rumble, though. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so Sauer says, yeah, it just happened to me. I, I was just downgraded off YouTube, which I don't think an advocate gets to say too often. I mean, it really, it really was perfectly timed. Um, so the, the fifth circuit, I think was, uh, not buying the government's argument that this wasn't coercion, that this wasn't government action to take away people's free speech rights. I didn't, I didn't count one vote on that. Um, they're interested in the scope of the, they're interested in standing, but Mark and I have gone through that many, many times. Someone's going to have standing. Okay. I'm pretty sure someone's got standing. So the question. So and, then it's what's the yeah, size? Of and the I think even the state standing that they, they the states had their their um, post taken down. I think that's harm. They're they're in. So um, so the real issue is, does the breadth of this injunction get upheld? And um, 
if it does, what happens next? Well, probably the government – if the government appealed this thing in one day after after the initial ruling, I think it will be pretty quick after that. And uh, Mr. Tenney did ask for 10 days for the administrative stay to keep in place in case they did want to affirm so that the Solicitor General could go to the Supreme Court. And so that's what happened mainly at the hearing, and I think it's a pretty good um, sketch of where we're going to go in Missouri v. Biden going forward. And who knows when the opinion will come out, maybe a month, maybe two months. We'll let you know. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. And we are joined by our Senior Litigation Council colleague here at NCLA, Peggy Little. Peggy, welcome back to Administrative Static. Thank you, Mark. And so Peggy is here. We uh, we filed uh, yesterday or earlier this week, at least, uh, in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, uh, an appeal in a case called Securities and Exchange Commission of the Christopher A. Novinger and ICANN Investment Group. Uh, Peggy, uh, along with Kara Rollins and Caitlin Schiraldi uh, from NCLA, uh, worked on this brief. And uh, Peggy, this is one of the uh, SEC gag rule cases that you have been uh, at the forefront of for for some time now. Uh, Remind our listeners what this case is about in particular. Sure, happy to. Um, We discovered when NCLA first started that the SEC had this pernicious practice of forcing anyone who settles with the agency to agree to be gagged for life and not question any allegation of the SEC's complaint against them. Uh, And we have moved on multiple tracks to try to challenge that because it's very clear that Congress itself could not pass a law that says any American who settles a case with the government can't talk about the government's allegations for life. that's an obvious proposition. Yeah, for sure. So we filed... Um, and, but the SEC essentially did this by rule. <laughs> not and, even that. Okay. Not even that. In 1972, they slipped into the Federal Register um, a notice uh, of this quote-unquote rule that was effective immediately, and they declared that it did not require notice or comment. So it did not comply with the APA, and it uh, from its very beginning was uh, an invalid rule. It's sort of predicated on a lie because they, they said it's a housekeeping rule that doesn't affect third parties. And yet the whole point of the rule is to shut people up who are third parties. <laughs> so. I don't know how, how SEC actually briefs that point with a straight face. Yeah. Face. Either one, really. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, uh, uh, okay, so what makes the, the Novinger case different? What happened below and what are you appealing here? Um, sure. We um, uh, what, what happened happened below is that we decided to take a different procedural approach to uh, setting aside this rule. In other litigation, we had rule, uh, moved under Rule 60, and 
because courts don't like reopening cases and reopening judgments, we have so far been unsuccessful. So we took a different tack and um, we were helped in, in deciding to make that approach by the fact that the two of the judges on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has said it, in earlier litigation that this is a prior restraint um, on the uh, on speech, and that is the worst kind of First Amendment violation. So because we had that concurrence, we decided to seek declaratory relief and also call upon the court's inherent authority to police its um, court orders to make sure they are constitutional. And I just want to clarify for our listeners who aren't lawyers, a prior restraint is a ban on speech, essentially punishing you before you've ever spoken. You can imagine if you shout fire in a crowded theater, you're not allowed to do that. You could be punished after the fact for that. But a prior restraint is sent before you've ever opened your mouth, you're told you may not say X and it's specific to you. And that's why it's a prior restraint. Well, and it's also, it, it, it uh, says you may not say X about the SEC or its claims. So it's content and viewpoint discriminatory, which also is a per se First Amendment violation. Absolutely. So the district court below didn't, this, this, uh, this new tactic didn't work with the district court uh, this time around either. No, the courts are being coy with us. Um, this same judge um, had hinted there might be a way to do this in our earlier litigation. And so we gave a great amount of thought to this. We consulted with civil procedure experts, professors. Uh, we uh, brainstormed on this and decided that declaratory relief was appropriate. It was more than a good college try. It was a good law school try. I think <laughs> it was. You know, we, we gave it. Gave it. <laughs> it was. And and even even below, the judge agreed he has inherent authority to police his orders. So we are hoping that this new approach, which does not um, impair the finality of a judgment, it simply requires him to police his consent orders to be sure they're constitutional, will receive a good reception at the Circuit Court of Appeals, where, as I said, two judges have already opined that this is a prior restraint. Say a little bit more about that, the inherent authority to modify the, de the decree. So you're asking the Court of Appeals to essentially remind the district court that it has this inherent authority or just encourage it to use that inherent authority? Yes. And there's a, thank goodness, a lot of law in the Fifth Circuit on this. C consent decrees are very often issued in public interest litigation. And sometimes they, um, uh, uh, they go, they do things that are not constitutional. For example, they could for, um, in, let's say a uh, race case, they could actually permit discrimination. And so um, even if the parties agree to a condition uh, uh, that is in the consent order, the court is under an independent obligation to be sure it does not violate the Constitution. And as I say, we are fortunate to have a lot of good authority on that point in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. One of the, one of the um, questions that I wanted to ask you is, so what makes this case different from the other cases? I know you've had the Romerill case in the, in the Second Circuit. You mentioned this case has been in litigation before. What really sets this one apart and makes it one where you maybe think you have a better chance of success here? Uh, the, I think this, it's just the fact that two judges on the circuit have said that it's a prior restraint. These are issued in um, every single SEC settlement and also the CFTC. So the fact pattern, it does not differ from one case to the, the other, but we are hoping that 
because we have the appellate um, court's view of this as a prior restraint, that if we use this mechanism, this procedure of uh, declaratory judgment and inherent authority to police its orders, that that recognition that this is a First Amendment pro problem will be vindicated at the Court of Appeals. The other thing the brief does really nicely is it walks through all the things that you can't do. And so the district judge here sort of suggested that, well, you, you could just kind of attack this separately. And you said, no, 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 there's this thing called the collateral attack rule that doesn't allow us to do that. There's this other thing called the collateral bar rule. So we're not allowed to, to do, you, do you want to walk through those two things really quickly and explain how the brief said, well, you know, there's got to be some relief and you keep saying you can't do this, you can't do that. And then you say we can do these other things, but we can't do those either. So, you know, you've got to work with us here. Right. The collateral bar rule is the oldest and that, um, was a U.S. Supreme Court decision that said to Dr. Martin Luther King that when he did not get a parade uh, permit from the city of Birmingham, he could not just march, get arrested, and then hope to defend himself on First Amendment grounds. He had to challenge that order in the or the lack of a, an order allowing him to um, uh, have a parade permit. He had to challenge that in the court that made it. That's a U.S. Supreme Court decision. In, in advance. In advance. And that binds this court. Which I'm not sure it's a great rule, by the way. But anyway, it is, it is still the law. <laughs> it is still the law. And we have to be careful that we do not advise our clients to do something that will bring them in contempt of court. And the fact that that could bring them in contempt of court was recently recognized in the D.C. Circuit in a different challenge to the gag. And that's criminal contempt criminal contempt. So they could get thrown in jail if they, they, could indeed. if they disobeyed the court's order, regardless of whether the court's order was premised on something unconstitutional. Right. And then the district judge also suggested that we might just bring a separate action uh, for declaratory relief. But that doesn't work. The collateral attack doctrine, uh, which is throughout all of the circuits, says that unless you have a very specific jurisdictional problem, you cannot use one lawsuit to attack the outcome in another lawsuit. And you can, you can see why that makes sense to even a layman that you don't want to have a doctrine where people go around uh, getting results in an, uh, a lawsuit they don't like and then bringing separate lawsuits about that result. It also is really illogical. And I'm hoping that the Court of Appeals will recognize this because with due respect to Judge uh, Connor, what he said was you could bring a separate action and um, and then what happens? A new judge tells him what his orders should be in the old case, or if it gets consolidated, he now has two lawsuits to decide. It makes no sense. And, and now he can somehow decide it. And wasn't there one of these cases where they didn't tell you what the thing to do was? They just said, well, you know, there's other remedies. And then they didn't say, <laughs> that's the one that I is in my mind yes. right now. Where was that? That was, well, that was... Um, in the first Judge O'Connor right, yeah. opinion, who drops a footnote says, I'm mindful of the First Amendment problems, but Rule 60 is not the way to go. Right. And that was an invitation to us to think hard about how to take another swing at this. And that's what exactly what we're doing. We are committed to getting rid of this rule. Um, and we've challenged it administratively. We've challenged it in two circuits. We took a cert petition to the Supreme Court. And uh, we've got two judges on the Fifth Circuit who recognized the problem and a Southern District of New York judge who issued an opinion so eloquent 
that my friends say it reads like I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and, and I do think, and that is, that is the part, they all recognize this is wrong, but they, they have such strong cases to not collaterally attack, not revisit something that that's preventing them from reaching the real issue. Yes. It's preventing them from reaching the, the issue. And, and Peggy said, well, you know, you took another swing of the ax here. And I feel that, that the judge is saying, well, your ax is too dull. And you sharpen it, and, and you you know, and then you're saying, well, you know, there's nothing to sharpen it on. The the stone's too dry, and he's saying, well, wet it, you know, and uh, you you get around to this this the whole hole in the bucket song. It's like, look, you, you, there's got to be a way to get there from here. And you said, Peggy, the co- the courts are being coy, and I think that's a kind a kind word. But if there is a way to get the relief that you're seeking here, I think it would be helpful if the courts would. Pointed out, I and mean, not, they're not supposed to do your work for you. But for crying out loud, we've tried four or five different ways here, and and we have more. <laughs> we have more in mind. <laughs> that's right. Well, good luck with this. Uh, it's like Groucho Marx. If you don't like this suit, I have others. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, this uh, this is Securities and Exchange Commission v. Novinger in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Thank you, Peggy Little. Good luck. Thank you.